Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Steve Mills, a listener to the podcast who contacted me with details of ghostly phenomena he and some friends encountered back in the 1980s that is intriguing to say the least. I talked with him about those experiences and his thoughts on their nature and what it might suggest on a broader scale when it comes to trying to understand the supernatural. It was a really fun chat. Enjoy! Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Rich, and thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. A little while ago, when I asked for listener stories, I was I was hoping that some people would get in touch, and you did. So, so thank you for doing that. No, you're most welcome. It's one of those things that I've shared before several times. In fact, on one forum that I'm a member of, uh, um, I'm a blue supporter, Birmingham City. I've posted the story a couple of times, and the second time I posted it. Somebody actually posted back, oh, I know that what you're telling me there is true because I read it the first time you said it and the second time you didn't add anything. There was no difference. Um, it's exactly the same story. So I know that you probably, you know, there's, you're probably not having a string of a line here on that one. Hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of a long story and it's quite complicated in some ways. And to a degree, it's complicated by the fact that, you know, you're talking about a group of people in in the 1980s were um, very much, you know, sort of part of the psychedelic scene, etc., etc. We were festival people. So pretty open-minded, tended to believe in a lot of that sort of things. But when it comes to ghosts, I think most people that I know, and most people I knew at that time, if they had any opinion on the subject, were very much in the stone tape theory. Hmm. But, um, hauntings are something which is basically... Um, the area that some energy was released in with a particular event, et cetera, et cetera, is just replaying it. And there's no way you're interactive with it. It's just basically you watch it almost like watching a movie, but a sound, usually one without a soundtrack yeah. sort of thing. So the whole sort of um, psychics and et cetera, et cetera, mediums, um, ghosts as a sort of interactive thing, it was pretty much a sort of, nah, not really. I don't, I don't really see any evidence of that. So it starts with a friend of ours called Steve Thomas, who is uh, an engineer. And the last time I saw him was the night before he was killed. And then the day after, he was travelling to Oxford on the A423, which is a notorious, which back then anyway, before the M40 was built, was a notorious road. Very fast, a lot of corners. And as he's taking a corner on his motorbike, car comes around the other way, a bit too far over on the road, bang, gone immediately, instant death sort of thing. So that was a bit of a shock. And at the same time, we had this period. with was such a loose conglomerate. I mean, um, we all used to party together, etc., etc. I mean, my band came from the party scene. Um, Napalm Death were part of the party scene that we used to hang out with. Oh. Etc. Etc. Um, we lost uh, three people to road accidents, two on motorbikes, one while they're hot picking. Uh, we lost two people to suicide, 
that were both related, sadly, to abuse issues. Mm. And we lost another friend to uh, um, a drug overdose. Well, he, he was moving to Switzerland. He went to London. Last, he thought, oh, one for the road sort of thing and killed himself, a silly twit sort of thing. So we're talking a really huge group of people when you lose six people, if you see what I mean, in a year. Mm. And one of my flatmates at the time was, was a comic book artist called Martin Chaplin. And he used to take a lot of photographs, partly because he used to use them for posing for comic books. So this is, you know, before the days of camera phones, et cetera, et cetera. So having a photographic record or a large photographic record was quite unusual sort of thing. So Steve dies. About two days later, somebody comes in from our garden who's visited and goes, wow, who did that artwork on the fence? That's amazing. And I think there were three of us in the room maybe at the time. We all kind of looked at it and goes, pardon what <laughs> <laughs> artwork on the fence and on the left hand side of our garden looking south was a six foot tall 1950s built fence in the days when they were like you know one and a half inch thick planks and it had gone that gray color that wood does when it uh when it weathers right and it was just a bare 30 foot long fence in effect well 40 foot long fence so so we all so we said what do you mean who's done that on the fence and he said, who's, who's sort of stained the fence with that face? And we looked at it and said, well, nobody. <laughs> and we knew the garden really well. We looked after it. Um, we might have been a bit party-wise, you know, over the top. But we looked after the house and we also looked after the garden a lot. We, it's, it's kind of almost therapeutic for it. Mm. And so we all sort of wander out into the garden and go, what do you mean? Expecting some sort of, you know, little picture on the fence. And it's about four feet tall. It's about 10 feet from the house window. And it really does look like somebody is perfectly stained. Somebody in it, some, a helmeted head about four feet tall on the fence. So we're all looking at you thinking, that's strange. And of course, with Steve just dying in the road accident, people were very much like, oh, that's a bit strange, isn't it? And that was that. Well, we had a cat at the time called Aubrey. He was our first cat. It was a rescue cat. And sadly, he only lasted two years, and the cancer that he'd had returned, and he died of cancer. Now, his favourite spot in the house was to sit at the top of the stairs, sort of lie on top of the stairs. And as you walked up the stairs, because they're really steep, um, 53 degrees, funnily enough, the same uh, rake of angle as the Great Pyramid for some reason. Okay. And... Uh, He'd like to lie on top of the stairs, and as you walked up, your head reached the top stair. He used to like to sort of put his paw out and touch you on the head. <laughs> so it's just sort of out of almost deference to where he used to lie. Every time I used to walk upstairs, I used to think, oh, right. It was almost like there was his energy was still there. Mm. And you'd sort of, I'd step over to the left almost. I knew he wasn't, but I'd step over to the left. So that happened. And then friend of ours, he's, he um, started dating somebody and they were completely outside of our circle. No real connection to us at all. In fact, they used to do most of their, um, their um, socialising in Birmingham. So they bring them round. Uh, my partner at the time answers the door. My friend comes in. His new partner says, oh, can I use your toilet? 
And yeah, yeah, sure, sort of thing. So my friend comes in, sits down. I think there were about there was between eight or ten people in the house, and this is pretty typical at the time in a, of an evening, mm. sort of thing. So we're all sitting there. My friend's new partner walks in, goes, hello, 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 hello. Oh, yeah, you know, sort of thing, etc. as you are with somebody new. And then just stands there and goes, oh, by the way, um, did you know you have the spirit of a friend of yours who doesn't realise they're dead sitting at the top of your stairs? Wow. And the whole room just looked at them and went, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> and it was at that point that uh, Martin, my partner, uh, a guy called Colin, who's a photographer, who used to visit the house virtually every day, and another person who was a regular, all piped up and said, oh, that's really weird. We thought that was the cat. And they went, no, 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 no. You've got a friend up there who's died in an accident very suddenly, and they just don't realise they're dead. Mm. So we're all like, Okay, so Martin, being ever resourceful, and we were interested in these sort of subjects, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to pretend we weren't. He thinks, right, we can sort of do a bit of on-the-spot investigation here, you know what I mean? So he goes and gets, uh, I think it was two, or it might have been three photo albums. Remember the big photo albums used to get four photos on a page? Yeah. Sort of thing with the plastic covers, with the plastic covering over them. Yeah. I think it was three of two or three of those full of photographs of people from the bar, from the house, from various parties, etc., etc. He just put them in front of us and there you go, see if you can find him. Now, in those photographs, I know there was one of a friend of ours called Bonehead, who was the other person killed on the motorbike. There was definitely a friend of ours, definitely a photograph of Tim, who died of the overdose. Uh, the two people who committed suicide, there were definitely photographs, but they were women. And there was a photograph of Steve Thomas. Sort of thing. So the sort of general conversation, because you know it's split, when you've got eight or ten people, it tends to split into two or three different conversations. Um, my friend's partner's sitting on the floor just going through this book, and everybody else sort of breaks down into the sort of little conversations one has. And then suddenly she just pipes up and goes, oh, that's him. That's him for certain. And she points, and it's a picture of Steve Thomas. And we're all like, wow. <laughs> now, if you give somebody a picture of five people and say pick out the dead person, and they're all basically people in the 20s sort of thing, you'd be fairly impressed if they could pick it out once. If, you, if they got it right, you'd think, oh, yeah, but there's only five. Yeah. But we're talking about two albums full of pictures of probably 120, 130 people in total. To pick out one person and just say straight out, that's him. So it was quite impressive. So we all thought, okay, okay, this is kind of strange. Well, over the next couple of years, my friend's partner would regularly see him at their house where she was living with my friend. And even her sister saw him. Uh, she, her sister came downstairs one day and said, I thought Alf, who was the other person who shared the house at that time with them, I thought Alf had gone into town. My friend's partner said, oh, no, he has. So we'll lose that sitting in the bedroom then. And they both went up. And when my friend asked her sister to, to describe the person, she described to Steve Thomas. He was quite sort of, back in 1980, this would be 86, 87. Back then, not too many people of our age had beards. So Steve kind of was, like stood out. 
sort of thing. And Steve was bearded, fully bearded. And she described him, and he had this thing, like classic Steve was wearing sort of jeans and a white shirt. And she got that spot on, sort of thing. So it was sort of like almost continuous for her. We just sort of lived with it, that there was this sort of energy at the top of the stairs. What can we do, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that all went on. About two years after we first met this person, I get a phone call and they say, oh, Steve's gone. I've passed him over. He now knows I managed to explain to him. I think it was even in a loo of her house that she found him. Right. And told him. Sort of thing. Strange. Sort of thing. I was like, oh, okay. Carried on with life, sat down. I was uh, sitting in the living room. I thought I'd do a bit of stuff in the garden. Walked out into the garden. And, of course, she couldn't help but look at the helmet, sort of thing, on the fence. And it had started to fade. And in front of it was a six-foot-tall, single poppy in bloom that wasn't there the day before. And I'm like, look at, so I'm like, excuse me, went back in the house, sort of got everyone. Come on, look at this. And they all walked out. And, just, and everybody just went, well, where the hell did that come from? Because he wasn't there yesterday. So, I mean, it's not something you don't notice is a single six-foot poppy suddenly, you know, that's growing in the first place because it's tall for a poppy. Right, yeah, definitely. So, but this one had literally just come from nowhere and it was in full flower, just single bloom at the top sort of thing. And over the next whew, month or so, the face or the head on the fence just faded. Hmm. You can virtually not see it anymore. Within about six months, it had gone completely. You couldn't even tell it had ever been there. So that's strange in itself. Yeah. And maybe they're all coincidences. But there's a couple of postscripts to the story. Hmm. About four or five years later, I was sorting some paperwork out. You know, it just builds up when you live in a house sort of thing. There comes a point every couple of years where you think, all right, got to go through it all, chop out all the bills we don't need, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, being in the band, I had loads of contracts and stuff that I had to sort of, like, keep in various parts. So I'm going through my paperwork, and my partner leans over my shoulder, looks at a piece of, looks at a doodle that I'm holding. And she goes, that looks like the face on the fence. I looked at her and said, well, of course it does. And she said, what do you mean? So it's the last thing that Steve ever doodled when he was here the night before he was killed. It was a picture of a guy in a, do you know what I mean by a Corinthian helmet? Hmm. You know, the Greek-style um, military helmets? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see, most people on the... And this is one of the weird little things. Most people who looked at the fence saw a guy in a motorcycle helmet. Only two of us saw it as a Corinthian helmet, and neither of us had ever said anything. So I think I said, well, that's, that's what Steve did. That's the last doodle he ever did. That's why I kept it. And my girlfriend just looked at me and went, oh, right. That's a bit <laughs> strange, isn't it? Then about a decade ago, I was talking to a friend of mine came round. I told him this whole story. And you kind of sit back at the end of it and you expect people to say, yeah, right, Steve. Of course, Steve. <laughs> Keep taking whatever you're smoking. Mm. Sort of and my mate just looked at me and went, for that? I looked at him and said, what? He said, for a couple of years after Steve died, my partner used to wake me up at two or three o'clock in the morning and say, will you, tell, will you please tell, 
Steve Thomas to stop knocking on the window. It's freaking me out. And then they go back to sleep. He said, leaving me sitting there, what the hell's going on? And he said, they've done it on several occasions. And the thing was, my friend's partner and his partner lived in a flat on the sixth floor with no balcony. So <laughs> knocking on the window saying, can you let me in? Sort of thing. It was a bit weird to say the least. Yeah. So rather than him just laughing at me and saying, oh, no, so they're, you know, ghosts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he had his own tale. And it was like, thank you know, I now understand oh, we weren't the only people who were seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many weird things going on there, aren't there? Yes. I mean, if you take any of them individually, you can just write them off as weird coincidences, mm. blind luck, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, it's left me thinking, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know anymore. I'm not, I'm, you know, I, I'm open to be convinced if somebody can give me more evidence as to, as to what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, have you... The more you think about it, do you have an idea in your own mind what was going on? Um, well, it was around a period where a lot of us really did get into the sort of weird stuff, particularly the Robert Hunt and Wilson 23 and everything, etc., etc., etc. And my journey into weirdness, I mean, I always loved science fiction when I was a kid. I'm 60 years old. I grew up watching uh, The Invaders, um, what's the one with Dr. Smith? Um, oh, um, Lost in Space, lost, yeah, yeah, Lost in Space, stuff like I grew up with all those classic TV series. And then when I was about 14 years old, I was in my, do you know what a wreck is? I don't know if you what you call them where you live, recreation park. Sort of, oh, uh, yes, I was in my local wreck when I was about 14 years old, and it was just at that period where you're allowed to stay out after it gets dark. And your folks let you stay out, sort of thing. When it gets dark, it's, oh, you know, you feel very grown up about life. <laughs> and the two of us are lying on a bank. And as I'm lying on this bank, I think it was probably smoking in number six. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> what you did in those days. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I watched this sort of formation of lights, tiny little formation of lights in a perfect V formation about a dozen or so lights traveling across the sky. And I've always been into astronomy since I was a kid as well. So I was looking, thinking, well, that's unusual. And as it sort of reaches the zenith, it split, traveled about 15 degrees, then the two wings joined up together again. And I'm thinking, oh, that must be my eyesight, weird sort of parallax thing. And my mate turns around to me and says, I didn't just see that, did I? <laughs> I went, what? The fact that I just split into two? And then you went, yes. And we both ran up to the top of the bank and these lights vanished about 20, 25 degrees above the horizon into a sort of haze that you get over towns, particularly back in those days. So it was, it was into the sort of, um, what's the word? The industrial haze uh, mm. on the horizon sort of thing. About a week later, my mum, who worked at the library, comes home. I haven't said a word about this to anybody. I don't, it's funny how people will tell you that as well, that you just don't talk about it until years later. Puts a book on the table and says, I think you ought to read this. And it was Operation Trojan Horse by John Keel. Hmm. So that was my introduction to weirdness. So that sort of coloured, because I went on to Passport to Magonia and all the classics sort of thing. So that sort of coloured my sort of approach to um, paranormal, whatever you want to call it. It's been a, a sort of holistic thing that that we're talking about something that seems to encompass so many different 
sort of uh, fields, and yet they are all possibly the same. They come from the same source. Yeah. So yeah, I know what you mean there. I mean, I, I did used to be into ghosts. There's only one real ghost story that I ever really loved, um, totally in love with, and that was, um, if you look it up online, if you do a photographic search in Google for Ealing fake little girl's face at the window, hmm. you'll get a story come up. And unfortunately, the quoted story that's, that comes with it is not the full story. I had the book that that came from, it was, um, I, don't, I don't know how old you are, but back in the 70s, the Daily Mail had a run of publishing books on sort of strange subjects, and they did several ghost stories, sort of compendiums of real-life ghosts, supposed real-life ghost stories with photographs. Hmm. But in terms of sort of hauntings and all that sort of thing, no. I, you know what I mean? I, I could always... Most places that people used to say were haunted, uh, I used to think, well, yeah, because it, it's a creepy place. You're sort of presupposing stuff. And I think often with um, sort of weirdness, it tends to react to who you are. Uh, yeah. I mean, a classic example of that is, is, is um, because I do a lot of UFO stuff, is a friend reported a UFO sighting to me where him and his wife were walking home from the pub. He's a professional photographer and a musician. And he'd been taking photographs of the pub, so he had his camera with him. And as they're walking home, they see what weird lights in the sky, sort of thing. Um, and they basically have a close-up, close-encounter with these lights. Now, they are standing next to each other. He has a whole conversation with what he believes to be an alien entity. She never saw a thing. As far as she's concerned, the light sort of came very close. That's all she remembers. He's hmm. convinced. So like, convinced to the extent that he changed his musical path within the week after having this experience and immediately became successful. Wow. Well, he'd been like in a prog rock band for 10 years, never got anywhere. And in two weeks, it all swapped round. So I'm aware that these sort of weird happenings tend to feed into whatever you sort of want almost, yeah. whatever you've got a need for. So here we have a situation whereby we were all just bystanders to this. None of us had any real sort of vested interest other than that Steve was our mate. So that, yet we all experienced the same thing. And unlike with a lot of tales about, you know, the supernatural, etc., I'm talking, I could give you 20, 30 people who will testify to the face on the fence. Hmm. Um, there are eight or nine people there, you know, eight to ten people there when my friend, came out with the thing, oh, Steve T's at the top of your stairs, et cetera, et cetera. These weren't isolated incidents. So this happened to a lot of people over two or three years. Hmm. And at the end of it, people were just sort of like, oh, yeah, well, that's probably the best thing to happen. So I mean, <laughs> nobody saw it. I don't think it changed anybody's life in a sense. But by the same token, I think it all did leave us with a lot of the questions, which I still don't have an answer to. I'm not going to, be, I'm not going to lie. I don't understand the whole haunting thing at all. UFOs and stuff, I've probably got, I've got my head around it a bit, as much as anybody else has. But when it comes to stuff like haunting, I'm still, you know, I think most of them are the stone tape theory. Or, you know, the um, ultrasound theory from uh, Coventry University. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they discovered that uh, at Coventry University that they had a fan, extract a fan in one of their uh, laboratories that was causing the 20 hertz bump 
So people kept thinking there was somebody looking over their shoulder, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and they reckon a lot of tunnels and a lot of old places that has water running underneath them, has this low frequency thing, which triggers a reaction in humans. You're not even aware of it because you don't hear it because it's, it's almost under the level, uh, threshold of human hearing it. Uh, just, I think it's 18 hertz, isn't it? Hmm. Sort of. So it's below the human threshold. Sort of thing. So I can get that. I'm perfectly accepted. You know, I'm perfectly into, you know, I'm not somebody who's, who's sort of like, you know, de- de- in sort of denial of science. I'm very much into science. And I think the more I've read on quantum um, reality or unreality, if you like, the more I think it's it's on that level. These things work on that level. And why? Maybe that's the clue. Maybe that's the big question is if once we sort out why these things will happen, why these things happen, um, we'll have a true understanding of what's going on in our universe. Because I think we're still very much children as a race, sort of thing, in terms of our understanding of the whole universe. I mean, have you seen that latest thing about uh, um, there are gaps in space where there are nothings? Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's no real background radiation. It's not giving off any heat. Well, there's quite a body of scientists who believe that's just basically that's where the multiverses meet. Yeah. That we live in a multiverse. So is everything else, all these things happening right next to us, but the frequency we live, because we are all frequencies. I know it sounds very hippie-ish, you know, very, very right on to talk about that, but we are all frequencies. Everything we do, everything we see is based on a frequency vibration. So we could be having, there could be a whole universe sitting right next door to us that we just don't see. So I think that, but there are entities, whatever you want to call them, I don't know. Intelligences is probably the best Mm. word that can bleed into our universe at times. And maybe they are trying to contact us. Maybe they're just taking the mickey out of (laughs) it. Well, you know, for all we know, this could be joy. This is could be the equivalent, yeah, their sort of equivalent. A kid's joyriding is popping into our universe and freaking out the talking monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, it's a very sort of we're very ethnocentric in that in the way that we look at these things. Yeah, we always we tend to view the universe as if you well, when you think about it. All the major monotheistic, monotheistic religions talk about the universe as being created as if for humans. Hmm. And that is their essential core. And yet, obviously, you know, I, I look back 100 years. We go back 100 years ago. 100 years ago, or just over 100 years ago, because it's now, yeah, 1920s was when people first discovered it. People thought that all the nebula and all the galaxies that one could see through a telescope were part of our own galaxy. They're all part of the Milky Way. Then they thought we lived in what was called a local group and that our galaxy, you know, that our universe was, you could measure quite easily how big it was and that all the, you know, there was nothing more than about, you know, 20 or 30,000 light years or light years away from Earth, a couple of hundred light years way from Earth, etc., etc., etc. And then we discovered the universe is far bigger. And I think it's about six weeks ago we discovered that in actual reality we've only been mapping about five percent of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the universe has grown exponentially in the last hundred years. 
Are we talking about Einstein? Everyone, a brilliant mind, absolutely. And he was a truly brilliant mind. But why did he give up physics and go into sort of just being a celebrity scientist? Because he lost the argument with Bohr. Because remember the whole thing? There's a quote that gets misused many times in science. Remember Einstein's quote about God doesn't play with dice? Hmm. Well, that was his argument against quantum theory. And of course, Bohr showed that in reality, if anything, it's the dice that are rolling good. Right. Sort of thing. And Einstein gave up physics because he could not get his head around that concept. But the, we started off with superstition. We then became what people call the Enlightenment. And we then entered what, you know, the last 250 years has been what we call the clockwork universe. But somehow our universe works like a finely tuned mechanism that can be predicted in all manners, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But once you grasp the basics, you can basically predict, from the micro, you can predict the macro. And of course, we now know it's a combination of the two. That is what used to be called superstition and uh, the clockwork universe are merged. What we actually live in is a far more sort of nuanced creation than we ever dreamed possible and we're only just coming to uh you know to realize this uh, this thing about uh quantum computers them saying that in reality what they are actually talking about in practical terms is accessing another uh, dimension hmm. that is identical in every sense to our dimension but the ones and zeros on their computer are different are the swapped to our dimension and you look at you listen to scientists <laughs> saying that, and this is sort of mainstream scientists talking like that, and you think, wow, <laughs> the possibilities. So I uh, so I'm sort of still of the opinion that we probably live in a universe where anything can happen and probably does just because it can happen. Yeah. So these and it's almost like these are uh, these are we're sentient creatures who can sort of look at the universe and sort of understand our own creation, if you like. And maybe these are just sort of like, oi, oi, don't forget this. Sort of thing. <laughs> you're not all, you know, you're not all seeing, you're not all being, etc., etc., etc. There are things outside your ken at the moment that you need to that we need to sort of address. And maybe this will give us the key to ghosts, to UFOs to cryptids, because uh, I've always said to people uh, with the X-Files, it's really funny that the uh, the one episode of the X-Files in which they go totally sort of like full on is done as a comedy because I don't think they've got away with doing it as seriously. Right, yeah. And it's, and it's episode 23 of series four, I think. It's the one, it's the one with the strange title. But it's the one where... The two pilots are masquerading as aliens. Yeah. And they get abducted by an alien sort of thing. Yes. Well, yeah. the craft, it's a Bigfoot that gets out of the craft. Hmm. And I always thought, ah, very clever. Because Bigfoot and UFO sightings tend to go hand in hand. And Bigfoot yes. need to... And, I mean, even the native law is that Bigfoot walk between the worlds. Hmm. Sort of thing. So I think that's really what happened then but you know we we were 1980s 
mid-twenties kids in the UK, England, how do you get through to them to make a point? Well, that's one way of doing it. Hmm. Sort of thing. So it might not have been any of that might not be ghosts at all. It just might have been an experiment to see if we were sort of going to react to it. Sort of thing. How we'd react to it. Exactly. Right, yeah, because it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like you were talking about what happened with uh, with your cat in that house and, and moving aside for it after, yes. after it died. And I, and I guess, you know, if you're doing that, you're sort of primed, aren't you, to be exactly. open to this sort of experience? Yes, and everybody in the house did it. Even those who don't, you know, have no interest in that sort of thing admitted, oh, yeah, it's, I always sort of step to the left because just out of deference to it. Hmm. I suppose it's no different though than the, the, when people sit in the same seat for years that nobody will sit in that seat after they die. They yeah. take quite a while for people to sit in that particular seat, sort of thing. At football grounds, that's quite common, sort of thing, where somebody who's been a season ticket for maybe 40, 50 years dies, and they've always sat in the same ticket, the same seat, and it can take a month or so before anybody will sit in that seat. Right. All, you know what I mean? Because it's always bad manners. Yeah, you know, old Bob used to sit there, sort of thing, etc. So, so there is that sort of. We still got this uh, sort of thing about ancestors and things that we've been close to. We tend to sort of revere them, revere them in in that particular sort of way. So maybe it, it was just latched on to that. It was like, right, kids, we're going to give this little lesson and see if they wake up. I don't mm. know. I mean, that, that's maybe a bit sort of cheesy way of looking at it, but uh, it was. I never felt, I don't, nobody ever felt scared by it or anything, you know, it wasn't, ooh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was really sort of almost quite matter of fact sort of thing. It was just like, yeah, okay, you know, <laughs> we believe in weird stuff, so weird stuff's happening, so why are we complaining? In, in fact, it's quite funny. I have a friend at the moment who's sort of, how old are you, might I ask? Oh, I'm I'm 39. Okay, right. Well, you wouldn't have seen this. The original series of uh, Tomorrow People in the 1970s. Yeah. And they used to talk about breaking out, sort of thing, that they, these people had the extra ability sort of thing, but breaking out, et cetera, et cetera, and they go through whole lots of weird stuff sort of thing. Well, I have a friend who's sort of going through that at the moment, who's sort of like they've been in not denial, but they've sort of not really looked at everything in that sort of way. And that right. house has just gone absolutely mad over the last few few weeks. Their car keeps getting scratched when there's nobody around in the same mm. place. They've had it fixed and somebody's done it again. So they, the house, the electrics have just gone mad in the house. Uh, they keep getting... They, oh, two, one thing that they did have, and this is really weird because they've got no background in this sort of thing. So they'll come to me and start saying stuff. And they're like, how do you know all this? You know, if you do weird stuff, it just no. They had the weird um they had the weird stranger in the in the uh in public sort of thing. They're a photographer, funnily enough, they're a photographer for themselves. They had this guy just staring at them in public on a on a park bench, just looking at them. So so not park bench, uh, on a bench in sort of a square in town. And as they went over to challenge them, somebody walked in between them and it'd gone. And when they described the person to I said, oh, he's wearing a hat. His eyes looked almost almond-shaped if he wasn't wearing glasses. And they looked at me and they just went, how did you know that? I said, well, that's just people's experience. Once you get into this stuff, sort of thing, people tend to have these strange experiences. I mean, what, like I, said, I collect UFO stories. A friend of mine 
his mother, who's the sort of Gillette wearing uh, sort of woman who the empire was built on. You know, the sort of people if you invaded a house, you told her to wipe your feet first. <laughs> but that sort, you know, completely unflappable. So I guess she had a UFO story, but it wasn't the UFO story that freaked her out that she ended up telling that she ended up telling me. It was the aftermath. About two weeks after it happened, she went into the local town where she lives. And it's one of those sort of Cotswolds, uh, very bus, you know, bustling on a Saturday with the market in the, in the sort of uh, what used to be the village green. Sort of thing. He said it was packed. Sort of thing. So as she was walking through the thing, a guy walked up to her, and as he walked past her, he whispered in her ear, you were right not to tell anybody about what you saw. And she said, I turned around to say, what do you mean? And he'd gone. Now, like wow. somebody who doesn't believe any of this sort of stuff, but that was what freaked her out. Not that she saw a UFO, because she said to me, I thought it was one of our secret, and, you know, we weren't meant to say anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't, you know, so I never spoke about it. So sort of hmm. it was the fact that this guy leaned over and said, you were right not to say anything to anybody, and then vanished in the middle of a crowded, uh, middle of a crowded marketplace. That was what she, I said, I had to tell somebody then. I had to talk to somebody about this because I don't understand this sort of thing. And I just said, but I'm sorry, but that's really typical for having any sort of weird experience. That tends to, often there's a fallout with it. And it's almost like the fallout is you're not taking any notice still, are you? You're not looking in the right places yet, are you? Sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I told you about the 23 stuff. I sat there and I'd, I'd been reading all this Robert Anton Wilson stuff. I was really into the cosmic trigger and everything. I looked at my mates and said, well, the thing is, I lived at number 23 when I was a kid, but that's about the only 23 I can think of in my life. I, said, I can't really think of anything way it affects me. Two days later, we were building a rehearsal studio. Now, we don't live too far from the uh, NEC, so hmm. we managed to get hold of tons of really good wood, um, sheeting, uh, chipboard sheeting from the uh, NEC, from the stand there, sort of thing. So, so we might said, oh, we're going to have to line the thing and put all the, you know, a rock wall behind all the things. Out. So it's like, okay, I'll come up and start it with you. So I get up to the place, and there's about 40 sheets of this 8 by 4 um, chipboard all leaned up against the fence ready to go, and every single one of them had a 23 in red <laughs> marker on them. And they just looked at me and goes, you know what you said about 23s? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> It's like, okay, it's 40 sheets with 23 written on it. How's that for weird? And you just think, okay, pure coincidence. I'm perfectly willing to accept that. Okay, you know what I mean? But it keeps happening. <laughs> These coincidences could do it. And I think most people live their lives and they just don't notice them. When yeah. I, when I, I mean, I am one of those people who... I've got 101 people who said to me, I've never told anybody this, Steve, but, you know, not even my family. <laughs> but, and here we go. Sort of thing. And when you talk to them and when you actually sort of nail them on this, and they're kind of people a bit weird that you treat it scientifically. They're quite surprised at times. And when you nail them on it, nine times out of ten, you'll find these people had something weird going on at the time that was continually weird for maybe three weeks, maybe a couple of months, sort of thing, however long. And this was like the culmination of that weird ha weirdness happening to them. This was the big event, if you like, sort of thing. And it's almost like once they sort of went, oh, yeah, but well, there is weird stuff happened, it stopped happening. Because uh, right, although they yeah. stopped noticing it, 
sort of thing. I mean, and this is what I'm telling my friend at the moment. Um, I've had a couple of people quite sceptical. We've stayed at this house either working or, or just staying for a few days who have said afterwards, uh, I can't stay at your place again. I'm like, why? What do they do? Oh, it's not you. It's just weird stuff happens when I stop at your place. I'm like, really? And it'll be stuff like, they'll go to bed, put the shoes by the bed, and when they wake up in the morning, the shoes will be in the living room. Right. And they know that they put the shoes by the bed before they went to bed. And that happens, stuff happens around this house all the time. You just live with it. And I think most people, I think a lot of people know that themselves. They just get on with it. They just ignore it. You know you put the knife in the drawer last night, and that is sitting on the living room floor. Yeah, or things disappear. Yes, I, yes, and then a little while, yes, yeah, a little while ago, I um, uh, the night before, I put my headphones in my bag for work. The night before, and I was sure I had. And the next morning, just as I was ready to go out for work, I put my hand in my bag just to check, and they definitely, they definitely weren't there. And I was really annoyed because I wanted them so I could listen to music while I was working. I was really frustrated, and and I was walking to work. I just kind of stopped and said, "Look, just." Just give them back, okay? Just give them back. And I looked, <laughs> yes. I looked in my bag. I went, I opened my bag, put my hand in, and and they were there. <laughs> yes, so, and you know damn well that people say, "Oh, we must have just." But exactly. You know damn well, you probably turn that bag inside out. Going, Where have they gone this time? <laughs> yeah. So okay, stop looking around. Put them back. So exactly, you've got it spot on. And how do you explain that scientifically? Yeah, exactly. What theory can, what, you know, we don't have a theory for the, that sort of stuff. There's no baseline. And it's like when people say, oh, can you scientifically replicate it? Well, that's the whole point with these things half the time. It's like they are challenging science. No, I'm not going to do the same thing to you twice in a row. I'm just going to do it once, and you're going to have to work it out from there. Sort of thing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I... I I did work with somebody who did the voices, uh, speaking in tongues and stuff, etc., etc. Sadly, the <coughs> big God, <coughs> I made I made a whole album with them. Unfortunately, I had a terrible stroke, literally two weeks after I finished the album with them, and that kind of ended that sort of thing. But they used to speak in tongues and stuff like that, and you'd be recording them, and they just start singing in a weird language that I had no, you know, I'd try and find out what it was. And it's something like Babylonian. You do right. You're singing in Babylonian, please. But I mean, they'd been studied when they were a child. They they were taken into several institutes, sort of thing, because they just had this mark of the book. There's a I, I think it might even be on YouTube. Her name's Belita Adair, and uh, I think there might be a clip on YouTube of her on a Mexican TV show in the 1970s. And she's about 13. And she does this whole song that she sings in Spanish. And then the guy says, oh, wow, that's brilliant. How do you? My grandmother used to sing that to me. And she just looks up and goes, I know, but I've never played that before. And I don't know what the lyrics mean because I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and she sang it perfectly to him, straight off the top of her head. So, so this, it's almost like you can tap into it. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely coming to this. Uh, do you know the theory of morphic fields? I, I know a little bit. That's um, Rupert Sheldrake, isn't it? Yes, he's, yeah. He's written about that. I'm, I'm sort of drifting towards that, maybe. I mean, the, the thing about the morphic fields with me is, it's the thing with the crows. 
that's just like, what? Do you know the thing about how crows in Germany learnt a particular trick? And a way, particular way to open things. Mm. You know, crows, they reckon crows are the equivalent in terms of intelligence as humans were about 200,000 years ago. Mm. And what they couldn't understand was, was that these crows in Germany learnt this trick. And that sort of trick passed around crows in Germany. But what really did the heads in was crows in the United States who had no thing is the next generation of crows in the United States were born with the instinct for this trick inbuilt. So a crow in Germany learns something and the next generation of crows in the United States are born with the innate ability to perform that same trick. Hmm. So that's what I mean by the morphic field, but it's almost like there's an unconscious thing that links us all together that we tap into at times. You know, this whole thing about the experiment, often great, uh, often um, huge leaps in technology are often developed at the same time, convergent sort of thing. So, you know, you had, I think it was Alexander Graham Bell basically stole with the Italian guy's invention. Yeah. He got to the patent office first. I mean, you know, sad, but that's the truth, isn't it? You know, an Italian guy actually really had the, invented the phone. But Bell got the patent first. So, and it's this sort of convergent thing where people seem to in, invent the same things. Apart from then you get your sort of oddities like Tesla, who's mm. like a single man renaissance. I mean, people, I see a lot of people, there's a sort of trendy to sort of diss Tesla, oh, he wasn't that great, he wasn't this, he wasn't. no, he invented the modern world. <laughs> you know what I mean? Without Tesla, yeah. the modern world wouldn't look like it did. This is one guy who completely changed humanity in the space of 20 years, sort of thing. A bit like, um, do you used to watch QI? Yes. Do you remember the one about the uh, bloke who's killed more, than pe more people in the world than anybody else ever has in the history? Oh, was that the guy who, he invented leaded petrol? Yes, and then invented um, CFCs. CFCs. <laughs> he was trying to, yeah, he was just trying to help and people, happened, wasn't he? But... How he died. Yeah, didn't he strangle himself in a bath or something with a, no, with no, a device no. to to help people get out of the bath or something? No, he ended up in a he ended up bed bound, and he had one of the he'd invented a bed that sort of folded up so he could sit up. All right, and it folded in two and shut a minute. <laughs> like in um, like in Wallace and Gromit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you look at that and you think, how strange. There's one person in this world. It's like the anti-Tesla, isn't it? Sort of thing. <laughs> so, so you've got yeah. Tesla, you've got this other bloke. No, I'm just going to kill off as many. I'm just going to kill off thousands of people. Accidentally, of course. Yeah, so, yeah. That's a terrible yeah. thing, isn't it? He never meant to. He, he was trying to help the world, but exactly. it just ended up. In the same way the scientists, when they came up with DDT, thought they were solving a main problem, but they didn't realise, oh, damn, we've just killed off a whole ecosystem by mistake. Yeah. So you ended up with, you know, with the parachuting cats into the jungle to kill the rats, which had overrun because all the predators down the chain had gone. So they, but they didn't mean to do that. You know what I mean? And yet, we talk about, again, it comes back to this. Um, humans in this world are far too binary. We're either yes or no, good or bad, et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, even the concepts of good and evil are human constructs. Yeah, we are here because some star millions of years ago blew itself apart. We're born out of destruction, which runs contrary again to this sort of creation myth of a lot of, 
you know, religions is the idea that we were created out of in a positive way, sort of thing. No, we're the result of the death of the star, sort of thing. And when we die, we return back to the star. You know, I love that line in from Babylon 5. We're born from the stars of dust, to the stars of dust we return, but they read at people's funerals. I think that's brilliant. I think that sums it up so mm. perfectly for me, sort of thing. And it's like we're just sort of recycled permanently, sort of thing. And, you know, for as long as this universe lasts. And Again, going into, I don't know if you've experienced psychedelics, but the whole thing about psychedelics, really the thing you bring away from it is the time dilation thing. Mm. How could you possibly have sort of gained so much knowledge and insight in such a small period of time, um, et cetera, et cetera, yet at the time it was happening, it felt like forever. And then the next minute, the next hour, seems like it lasted a second. And then the next second is stretched out through an hour. And you realise that, that the time and space, which is, everybody thinks of time and space as a separate thing. But of course, it's the same, time space is the same, it's our dimension. It's yeah. the space time dimension. Sort of thing. But it's elastic. It's a lot more elastic. I always say, you know, the old Doctor Who, joking aside, it's a squirmy, wormy thing. <laughs> time. So it, it, we also always think of things in a linear manner. But human knowledge has been on a linear slope on this steady slope going upwards but of course we forget things we forgot how to make concrete for four for nearly a thousand years the romans yeah you know what i mean um the celts nobody knows how the celts melted steel mm. because there's no with all the sort of remains of celtic um forges that they found uh there's no clinker there's no clinker waste so they were forging steel uh metals Without you use it, without leaving the waste that we leave, and again, you look at stuff like the sword, you know, the legend of the Excalibur sword. Um, yeah, because back then somebody could make a sword which was that much better than everybody else's in a battle. It would sh other swords would shatter if you fought per that person, person using that. Mm. So the person who could create that would be a wizard, wouldn't they? Yes. Sort of thing, but it's quite logical when you think about it where those myths come from. So, I'm not somebody who's you know looking for the weird explanation in everything, sort of thing. I can quite see logically where myths come from. So, I mean, I, one of my pet things with Rendlesham is one of the things I never talk about Rendlesham Forest with the Rendlesham, Rendlesham incident. Rendlesham's got a history over 2,000 years old of weird shit happening there. Yeah, there used to be a pool in Rendlesham Forest. And it used to be inhabited by a mermaid who was a protector of the portal to the, the other world. I mean, that goes back five, six hundred years. Black shucks, um, red orbs floating through the trees. Mm. They've been, it's a thin place. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer in thin places. And I think one of the reasons why the UK has so many ghost stories, so many haunted, so many weird stories is. is Relative to its size, we have quite a high population density. Population density, even in France and Germany, if you have a thin place, you just leave them. Nobody needs to live there. In the UK, the thin places are cheap by jowl with large population centres, so people tend to wander into the thin places far more, sort of thing, than you would do in many countries. Same mm. in the USA. If you ask the Native Americans, they'll go, "Oh, yeah, that's a thin place," because nobody lives there. And it's almost like um, 
we used to live in these places. Meon Hill, I use as a classic example, was abandoned after this, I think after the Iron Age. And I always say to people, what's the enemy of the devil and the fairies in tradition? Iron. Mm. From the moment we started using iron, <clears throat> we lost touch with a part of us that we used to just accept. And we moved away from these sites. We no longer feel, felt comfortable around these sites because weird things happened there. And we moved into this sort of um, uh, very much a three-dimensional solid world thinking. We left the sort of spirit world behind us, you know, like the dream time of the Aboriginals in mm. Australia. Sort of thing. All the Native Americans, they see the two things as one. They just see the whole world as a dream, sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera, you know. But we, in the West in particular, we moved into this sort of concrete, everything's real, if I can't touch it, it doesn't exist sort of mentality. And we're still sort of suffering in a way because I think science does suffer from it, suffer because of it. Uh, I'm not trying to be, you know, I, I, I want to blend the two. I'm always about blending the two together, that the side, the, you know, the ability to be able to prove to people through repeated experiment, et cetera, et cetera, is important. So I think, and that science, you know, on an everyday level, of course science matters. Otherwise, nothing would stand up that we ever built, you know, sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera. But by the same token, I think we are missing, just sort of links the whole thing together. Yeah, I mean, materialist, materialist science, I think I would say, isn't great. I mean, science, there's so many areas of science that don't get the attention that they perhaps should um, because they don't, because they're no. not, they're not considered sort of part of the, the paradigm of the moment. Because there's, at the moment, there's, there are lots of stories coming out about people exploring the concept of plant consciousness and consciousness in in other in plants and animals and oh yes yeah which is really fascinating really and trees will starve their own young if they're not going to grow properly they starve yeah. them and let them die to the benefit of the other parts of the tree and that you've got a central central node under the tree which is part of the tree which is an in, an intelligence in a way that we understand intelligence yeah and the, the concept of a sort of world tree and trees in mythology i mean the, the, these people from past cultures they had an, an intimate knowledge of their world didn't they and it's and i, I think yes. what you were talking about before yes. is that i think we need to sort of try and get back to that we need to try and think it's a, it's about it's about the way people think isn't it i mean we've had like you were saying before we've had you know a couple of hundred years of people thinking in a rational materialistic way and it's and, and that's going to inform how people perceive the world, isn't it? Very much so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the oldest abduction story in the UK, as far as I can find, is from 1856. Mm. A guy called Roots in uh, Wales, in Neath. And if you look at it, that he tells what we would look at as a modern abduction story. Yeah. And that's just on the railways have become the dominant form of transport. And we were very much the technical, you know, by 1856, the UK is very much technical. We just had the Great Exhibition. It's all about machinery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this guy had a weird experience with what he think, what he looked back on. I was like, well, that's classic UFO sighting, abduction sort of thing. It's like that was when we, 
it was like whatever it is, suddenly thought, oh, right, right, we're going to have to change tack here, sort of thing. Yeah. The fairies are out. Right, everybody, lads, put the space helmets on and get in there. So, you know what I mean? So, because, as I say, I totally agree with um, uh, Jacques Vallée with the idea that, you know, the stories of, you know, disappearing under the hill with the fairies and that you spend a week with the fairies and when you come back, it's five years gone, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're the same stories. Yeah. It's just a different face on the story. And like one of those new uh, lines they've discovered in Nazca that looks like a giant worm with a person at either end of it. Uh, everybody who's looked at it who's into it goes, wormholes? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It looks like they understood the concept of a wormhole. Now, if you go back to the psychedelic experience, you can perfectly easily have a concept of a wormhole from a psychedelic experience without having ever built a car in your life or understanding the concept of a car. Mm. But it doesn't mean that you know. It doesn't mean that you'd be able to create one, but you could understand the concept of one. Yes, people often have similar experiences on these. Uh, you know, various plants and what have I think it's Iacusa, isn't it, would be in that area, sort of thing, that they tend to use. Or magic mushrooms. So, but the the experiences are often shared. There's often common threads to people's psychedelic experiences. So you can well imagine that, you know, the, the sort of revered uh, shaman types, the dude comes back and goes, oh, you can go from one world to another via these strange tunnels. And everybody goes, really? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, because he's the shaman, they accept it. So he says, I think I need to be able to, you know, we need to be able to represent this sort of thing. So they draw a big map on the deck. It's their thing, you know, it's their art. It's, it's their way of leaving messages. You know, it's no different. I mean, people say, oh, why draw the big lines on the desert? Well, we could say, well, why build bloody great big cities like we do? Yeah, you know exactly. What I mean? So we do it because we do it at times. So there is no rational explanation for these. Sometimes we try to rational rationalize what isn't rational, and that's humans. We're not particularly rational. <laughs> yeah, and there's also there's a difference between non-rational and irrational as well. I think. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Yeah, spot on. That's a really good. Uh, remember that one. Hmm. That's a good quote. Because one thing that what often gets talked about is that across cultures around the world the similar sorts of beings will appear so especially in places like forests and some people think well this this indicates that perhaps there was i think it's called like the prisca theologica which is this one original sort of religion or or concept of a of, of a religion yes and that yes. and that spread out across the world but but I, what i was thinking was well i mean we we think about our subconscious and and i think the way we're sort of have it explained to us that, it, that consciousness sort of exists inside our brain, but I don't think it does. I think, I think our brain just allows us to experience or, or be conscious, experience consciousness, and our subconscious is sort of a it, it's a non physical realm that we can sort of access, and that's where that's where thoughts can come from. Because people say people, you'll ask someone where they got an idea from, and they'll say it came to me, and they, and they say that as a threat, they say yeah. that as a term. But but what if it did? I mean, what if what if thoughts do sort of come to you? And they... I write songs, and I cannot honestly tell you where my songs come from. Hmm. I, I can spend like two years mixing a song, you know, working on an arrangement, but the original whole sort of construct from the song 
I would just be sitting there, pick up a guitar, stick on a drum beat, and 10 minutes later, it's done. Yeah. And I've got the vocal line. I'm sitting and thinking, well, where did I just get all that from? Because that's just like, you know, five minutes later, I haven't got an idea in my head about writing anything. And bang, there you go. Keith Richards has always said, nobody writes songs, we just channel them. Yeah. Keith Richards said. I mean, if you're an idea, I mean, imagine if if you're an idea, you want to you want to get made, don't you? You you want to yes. you want to be yeah. you want to be manifested. So how how do you get manifested? You find someone who will manifest you, and then they do that. And it's I, I like that idea anyway. <laughs> no, I, I can say, mad as it sounds, that wouldn't surprise me if it was real. Like, you know, that wouldn't surprise me at all if we discovered there is some sort of universal mechanism or some sort of universal bank of ideas, concepts, sort of thing, that we sort of drift through. There's a there's a, several Native American tribes who believe we don't have a spirit until we're three years old, and then the spirit finds you. Right. That you're born without your spirit, and then when you're about three years old, the spirit comes along and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll fit with that one. <laughs> On the go, sort of thing, yeah, etc. It's a fascinating concept. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sort of Whether it's, it's an interesting idea that we're born sort of without part of ourselves, that that essentially we grow something in the same way that you know you, you grow in height, that you grow spiritually as well, sort of thing. But you, um, why not? Why not? I mean, it is this thing that we seem to. But maybe this is it. We exist in both. Maybe this is the key that we exist in both the physical and the non-physical, and that's yeah. what makes it unique. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had, I had no idea of the story that uh, was based on, and other people said, "Oh, it's very like the Matrix." But I said, "No, it is sort of, but not really." That um, humans are unique. One of the unique races in the universe. It's a bit like the Navigator mm. idea from Doom. Humans are unique in the universe, quite unique in the universe. There's very few species that can do it. But when we sleep, we access other dimensions. Yes. Yeah. At a conscious level, but we sleep. And the, the aliens are farming us to use that to power their ships. Right. <laughs> so, like I say, it is a bit matrix, et cetera, et cetera. But, what, but it's an interesting concept, isn't it, that... What are we doing when we're asleep? Are we really asleep and completely dead to the world? Or is our brain doing something in another dimension? I mean, it, it, it definitely could be. I mean, I've had some dreams that feel... You only realise they're a dream when you wake up. They feel so real in the moment. And then you wake up and go, okay, yeah, it's, it's dreams are so odd. I, I, I mean, I... They're, they're hard to describe as well in almost in, almost in trying to explain them they lose something don't they because it's you, yeah, you can't well, quite exactly you can't you quite mean. kind of yeah. explain it as as how it yeah. was and 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 i've had dreams where i've realized i'm in a dream and had to sort of force myself awake because they're quite frightening or i feel trapped in a way and it's i i, I do think at least dreaming in part is some sort of explanation of it's not just something that we do when we sleep. It's not just a, it's not just a, something yeah, exactly. to help as part of the sleeping process. I think it is. Yeah, it's not like crazy, crazy. Yeah, 
because mm. I guess it's, just putting everyone's back into particular you know, back into the right files. Yeah, because I, I don't know about <laughs> you, but I don't I don't think I've ever had a dream where I've experienced time, and 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 in dreams, I don't ever really recall having a dream where I remember going on a on a kind of sequential journey. I sort of just went from place to place, and and when you're in a dream, it doesn't. It, yeah, it sort of doesn't have to make a sort of linear progressive sense because because time doesn't exist there. Time and space no, aren't the same. Exactly. So if you think about that and you think about the things that people see, part of me thinks that, well, are some of the creatures that people report and are some of the things that people see, is that something you know, sort of coming through the other way from that world into ours? Exactly. I totally agree with you. Do you suffer from the random scratches? Um, not scratches, bruises more than scratches. <laughs> ah, ah, on yeah. scratches. I had one about five weeks ago. Look, I had an itch right. on my back. And I looked over, I could just about get to it. I scratched it. I took off a, a dried scab. And it really yeah. hurt. And I went around looking in the mirror. I'm looking at a six-inch quarter long, quarter-inch wide, six-inch long scratch on my back. Now, I've got arthritis in my spine and my shoulder, right? Hmm. So on one side of my thing, I can't get anywhere. You know, sort of <laughs> thing. It, wasn't me, I didn't, it wasn't me scratching because I can't do it, sort of thing. And, but the thing was, I've got no, there's no blood on the sheets. There's no blood on any of my T-shirts. Yeah, I've got a scratch quarter-inch wide, about six inches long on my back. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But that's my and my friend who's having sort of, if you like, coming out at the moment for all this. They've just started getting it as well. And I said, "Oh yeah." I said, "How many times have I told you in the past I've had one of my random scratches?" <laughs> I, I, I never really thought. I used to just think, "What's he talking about?" Now I'm going to get it. Sort of so you get the bruises. Now I get scratches, and it's always on the back. And and when you look at it. I can I can literally I'll be standing in the mirror going look I can't touch that so I didn't do it to myself <laughs> you know and people go well, do you get this often I'm like yeah it happens three or four times a year so I get it's just random and I've had you know and I've had like three looks like three fingers dragged down the middle of my spine and stuff like that wow and I just I mean, I logically you think oh you've done it in bed but when this last one that I had. I really did search the bed. I said, well, sure, there's got to be a sign of some blood somewhere. There's got to be blood on a T-shirt. I can't have done that without, because, it, you know, I mean, it was a large, it was like a six-inch long scab, basically. So I, I thought, I can't have done that without noticing. So I, and there's got to be blood, because there's a bloody great big scab down there, mate. So no blood anywhere. It was just, a, it was like it appeared as a, as a scab. So very strange. But as soon as you were talking about a slate thing, I, knew, I kind of instinctively knew you probably suffered from scabs or bruises. Yeah. So, and people laugh about it because it's so, when you think about it, it's such a petty thing. It's so sort of ridiculous. And we're talking about this huge concept and we're talking about scabs and bruises. <laughs> so, but it's, again, what's the oldest adage in the sort of esoteric world, as above, so below? Yes. That whatever's happening to you on a micro level, think about it on the macro level. So it does, you know, uh, and the stuff they keep finding with planets and stuff that really shouldn't be, they keep finding stars that shouldn't exist. Yeah. They just find that star, which is basically, that must, they're convinced it must be a gas giant that's had all its gas ripped off it 
but they've got no explanation for what could possibly steal the entire atmosphere from a gas giant sort of thing. And, and even they say, well, the only thing we can think of would be an alien civilization that's farmed it sort of thing in some way. Well, I, just sort of, I mean, that's crazy. I, I, 30 years, I'm so into astronomy, 30 years ago, I would have sat here, I'd be on this podcast, we are talking about aliens, I'd be saying to you, but the problem is, because most of the stars in the universe are at least binaries and a lot of them are triples and more, accretion disks don't get to form because of the uh, gravity problems. And you've got two stars rotating around each other, etc. So and that was the accepted science. That was what everybody in astronomy believed. And then it turns out there's more planets than stars. And that triple stars, uh, binary stars, have all got planets. And it's completely contradictory to what we thought 30 years ago. It's turned science on its head. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it just, show, it just shows that you can't stick to a, a model for too long. You have to kind of allow... No. For no. sort of a, an adaptive. Well, that goes back to belief, doesn't it? If, if belief is about ego, you invest ego in belief. So therefore, you will not allow any other evidence to contradict that you believe it, unless it's blinding. Unless it's blinding, even then, some people won't give up on it. Yeah. Or... So I, I have models. I think this is what is going on. I'm not telling mm. you. This. I only think everything we're talking about here is pure supposition. Exactly. But then, yeah, in some of the greatest sort of philosophies, life is pure supposition. <laughs> mm, yeah, I, I remember, um, I think it was Francis Bacon said, the most profound thing a scientist can ever say is, I don't know. And I think that's very true and, and a great way to think as well, to, to, yes, exactly. to, want, to want to know, but to admit yeah, that you're yeah, never going to know yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a permanent quest, isn't it? It's the yeah. old thing, like the great men are reminders we may make our sublime and imparting leaf behind us footprints in the sands of time. Uh, yeah. The old long poem. So I think it is very much that. And that, really, that's all we can do, you know, is leave a little footprint and maybe leave something that, that is perceived as beautiful. Because yeah. my experience, a lot of people have weird experiences. My experience of the sort of sacred and profane, if you like, sort of thing, is of beauty, pure beauty. My Full-on psychedelic experience was amazing. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. It completely changed my life, sort of thing. But it was incredibly beautiful. I did not feel threatened by it at all. But I was aware all the way through it of other intelligences being there that weren't human. Yeah. I mean, that's I, I agree. I mean, not on that level, but I know that, you know, whenever, whenever I'm sort of by myself and I'm in in a forest or, or you know in, in the countryside and it, it, it is peaceful and you do feel a connection yes you, you you feel like you're sort of almost in, in, in the right place in, in the right state of being you're you're sort of where you're supposed to be in a way and you're 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 kind of away from the sort of constructed the, away from the constructed world and back sort of more connected more connected to nature I think. Yes, have you ever stood on a cliff top in a storm? Uh, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? That sort of thing, the primal. Yeah. How primal that is, and I used to when it was about twelve thirteen, I used to call it my savage delight. Right. The, the, half of me. Bloody hell are you doing here, you idiot? It's freezing. <laughs> Go out. 
<laughs> sort of thing. And the other side is thinking, wow, can you feel the energy? You know, sort of thing. And that is the human condition, isn't it? Half of us is thinking, I want my tea, I want my bed. And the other half is thinking, wow, look at that, that's really weird. Sort of thing, you know. And that seems to be the sort of balance that we have to find, sort of thing, in life, as it were. But it is, like you say, I look up at the sky and I just, I feel at home. Hmm. I look at the vastness of the universe and I say, wow, that's where I come from. Most people, when you go about UFO, I mean, it's classic thing with the UFO sightings. We've been saying, oh, well, I never saw it. And most people don't even bloody look up at the sky unless it's raining or they're looking out for the weather. Now, if you live your whole life, the, the whole Vogon constructor thing could fly over coffee tonight <laughs> and half a dozen people see it. And the rest of the people go, oh, that is the rubbish. And you go, well, when was the last time you looked up at the sky, at the night sky? Well, I don't. Why would you? Well, yeah, stop complaining to me, though, about actually doing something. <laughs> you know, if you did look, you might see more. Yeah. Sort of thing. And that's one of the problems that you have dealing with this, that people don't want to see. It's like, no, I'm going to watch curry. I'm going to drink my cup of tea. I'm going to bed. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to get up. In the and, of course, we've all got to do that. But it doesn't mean you can't leave the beautiful bits out, the interesting bits out as well, you know, into your life as well. Sort of thing. We're not saying it should be on one or the other. It should be, again, because that's this thing about balance, doesn't it? Yeah. And it all seems to be about balance. We're not going to give up on our corporeal sort of life, are we? So, no. But at the same time, there is another side to us. And you see it with animals. You know what I mean? I mean? Some of the interactions I've had with animals over the years, just like you just think to yourself, well, that's weird, because that animal obviously knew what I was thinking. <laughs> really? And then you go, well, why not? It's just a different level of intelligence. Yeah, exactly. I mean... Well, not a different level. That's probably... The, that, that's demeaning, because it's, it's like a... Because in terms of, like, if you look at it the way, cats are far more intelligent than us, because as far as they're concerned... The entire thing that we've built in this, this world is all for their pleasure. <laughs> That's how cats view it, and same dogs do. Isn't it brilliant? I've got all these weird-looking pink things to build this for me. Wow, brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, so, and clear and up so, after so, me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not the, the clean <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? So to their intelligence, they've got it sussed. Why should they change anything? They don't need to build rockets to get to Mars. I've got a bone, I've got a bed, and the bloke chases st- and they throw sticks for me. What more do I want? I know. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like a great life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the but that is the curse of humanity, isn't it? We're cursed to want more. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's very well said. Well, Steve, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and and telling that story. It's it's really interesting. Okay, I'm sorry to keep you going for so long. <laughs> no, no, not at, all. not at all. No, it's been fantastic. Well, thanks, Rich. Thanks again to Steve. He agreed to be interviewed at pretty short notice, which helped me ensure I could keep the podcast on schedule. If you've had a similar experience and would be interested in discussing it in an episode, you can email me at someothersphere at gmail.com. And you can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.